Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court ruling, and then for the rest of the hour, we'll be joined by Brother Joe. You're not going to want to miss it. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Everyone, welcome to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is back. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, sir. Glad to have you back. We missed you. There was like a little Brian-sized hole in my heart all day, <laughs> and it's finally—is that, is that sacrilegious or just weird? Maybe, uh, maybe. a little bit of both. But I'm okay with it. It's good. Sure. <laughs> that should be like the new tagline of the show: the common good. A little sacrilegious, a little bit weird. Um, <laughs> Always disappointing. <laughs> Sure to upset your parents. Uh, all right, a couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show. We're posting all of our articles there. We would love for you to weigh in, leave a comment. You can also send us a private message if you have ideas for future shows or guests or topics. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good, plus wherever it is you get your podcast. You look for a podcast, I guarantee we're there. But one thing you should know, subscribing, rating, and reviewing really helps us out a whole lot. It helps more people see the show, and we appreciate all of you who have done that already. Ryan, before we dive into this topic, I feel like it's been a minute since I talked to you. How are you doing with this 140-degree weather right now? Are you doing okay? Oh, man, is it a sauna out there. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, I guess this is summertime in Chicago, right? We had our short spring. Uh, we we right. inflated the pool for the first time. We, we bought an inflatable pool for the kids and it like goes up to like their, their uh, waist at the most, <laughs> but they're pretty excited I, about that today. So, I mean, uh, I was also the family. We had that like oscillating sprinkler and we oh, thought yes. we were living in a mansion. Like it was just yep. the greatest thing in the world on a hot summer day to have some kind of, I just went for a run like a big dummy. So not smart. No, sir. I regret the decision immediately. Um, I do want to make sure that we have some time to actually talk about this because it is the thing everyone is talking about. The Supreme court, made a ruling regarding DACA. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on? Uh, yeah, so uh, reading from the Religion News, it says, faith groups are applauding the U.S. Supreme Court's decision temporarily, temporarily halting the Trump administration's effort to rescind an Obama-era program granting legal protection to hundreds of thousands of undocumented immigrants who were brought to this country by chil- uh, as children. So it's called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. And uh, you might remember years ago, President Obama instituted this where basically it, uh, to my understanding, it protects uh, people who are here, might be here illegally, uh, but were brought here as children. So they've grown up in the United States. They've gone to school. Uh, and so the, the Trump administration was wanting to rescind this. Uh, and so many uh, advocates uh, for immigrants were very happy with this. Now, it is. Uh, we do need to point out that the decision kind of, it says, hinged on a technicality. So it doesn't actually prohibit the federal government from still rescinding the program, Mm. but it ruled that it's doing so improperly. So uh, Justice Roberts, who was the swing vote in this one, uh, said, we do not decide whether DACA or its rescission rescission are sound policy. So this might fall back into the lap of of President Trump or into Congress. Uh, but for the time being, uh, a lot of people, especially those who have been advocating um, for especially people who fall under this umbrella, saw this as a big victory today and somewhat surprising. Justice Roberts, again, tends to be pretty conservative. But again, he swung here 
Uh, and uh, President Trump was none too happy about this, if you've seen his tweets today. But that's where it goes today. And uh, yeah, a lot of discussion and debate around this so far. I actually haven't seen the tweets. Could you give me a, a quick flyover? What are the what are the tweets been saying? So uh, he tweeted earlier that it's clear that the justices, it was actually tongue in cheek for once. He was kind of funny, although it was somewhat an inappropriate tweet, but at least it was kind of funny. He said, uh, I'm starting to get the feeling the Supreme Court doesn't like me. <laughs> so that was oh, his really tweet. I completely yeah. missed that. But then later, he also is using this to rally his base. He said something to the effect. I don't have it in front of me, but something to the effect of uh, we have you basically need to reelect me because we have trouble in the Supreme Court. You're going to lose your Second Amendment rights. Uh, basically, you need me to get more conservative judges in there. So it did go uh, pretty uh, campaigny uh, after the first one where he said, I don't really think they like me. But he was none too happy and uh, clearly is going to use this to rile up his base a little bit. I think the big win here is your use of the word campaigny. I'm a bit- <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows what I mean, though. <laughs> That's true. I want to make that into a shirt. All right. Well, I do mention uh, quite often that we post these articles on the Facebook page. And uh, I shared this article and asked people to kind of weigh in what their thoughts were. So here, here are some of the thoughts that we got earlier today. Uh, Christy said that she's happy since it applies to many of her former students. David Cook said, while I support legal immigration, I also feel the DACA kids were not at fault and am pleased that this stood. Uh, Judith said, give a star to the Supreme Court for this ruling. Bill said, disagree with court decision, even if it's the right outcome. Interesting. Constitutionally, mm. should require legislation to do this. Congress, both parties, have had years to fix this, but prefer to keep the issue alive. That's an interesting take. And I wonder why Bill would say that they have chosen to keep it alive or what he presumes those reasons are. And Janet said, I support the education and development of any child, especially underprivileged children. I believe this is our responsibility as Christian. So it seems like at least on the Facebook page, the majority relatively positive. I imagine there are people listening that don't have that position. We'd love to hear from you. We really would. We love for this to be a dialogue about, you know, that a lot of, a lot of this is kind of over our heads and a little beyond right. our pay grade. We have also talked with Matt Sorens a number of times. Ho- hopefully we can get him sometime next week. If you want to learn more, though, about him and his organization, worldrelief.org, worldrelief.org is a great place to go, even if you're feeling like, I don't even know where to start in this conversation. They have so many wonderful resources. It's some great reading there to kind of at least begin to wrap your head around all this. Yeah. Brian, I'm wondering, what do you think are the implications of a decision like this for Christ followers? Like your feed, I imagine, looks a lot like mine right now. Everyone's posting about it. Some are thrilled. Some are furious, obviously. You're a pastor. You're kind of caught in the middle. Uh, <laughs> I'm not asking necessarily where do you stand, but like how do you navigate as like just a man of faith, as a pastor, as a shepherd? Uh, what are some ways that maybe you, you navigate this going forward? Yeah, I, I something I did say to somebody was, I'm. you like to point out that these types of legislation are kind of beyond our pay grade, right? Like, I, I don't really get uh, the what's the right legislation. I just know that for the church, uh, and I would like to say for our country, uh, I would just like to always um, tend towards compassion, tend towards um the marginalized. And so I, I think that there is uh, that, that it's positive to say that they're not getting sent back, but to say that well, I don't know what the right answer is legislatively, but I do think the church and the Christ follower, I do think that we need to have a bent towards compassion and uh, and then have those conversations from there. How have you gone with your uh, with your feed today? Yeah, I think I mean, without 
showing too many of my cards. I, I tend to agree with a lot of what World Relief puts out here. Maybe we'll uh, share the link to it or something because the last time we had Matt Sorens on was not only incredibly insightful, yes. but I, I found myself most of the interview thinking like, yeah, okay, that's, that's I think, where I land. And it's, and it's really biblical. It's really thoughtful. This yeah. is someone who's like deeply in the trenches. He's not just kind of pontificating from an ivory tower somewhere, which to your point, I think is really important, this posture of compassion regardless of where we land on this. And I think this is maybe the bigger point that I'm I'm interested in making or maybe making later in the show is that regardless of where you land on this topic, as Christ followers in particular, mm-hmm. we have a mandate, a charge, a commission to be a people of compassion, a people of understanding. And I think this is another one of those examples where we could maybe model a little bit of the slow to speak, quick to listen mm-hmm. kind of posture that James yeah. just towards. And I think, uh, yeah, I think our world would be better if either way. That's on our Facebook page. We would love for you to weigh in there and hear some of your thoughts. We really, really do want that to be a place for dialogue. Coming up for the rest of the hour, we have a very special guest, Joe. His name is Brother, and you're going to love his story. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post all of our articles there. You can send us a message there if you want. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Plus, we're podcasted. So if you're just joining us live on the radio and you missed anything, go back and listen to the podcast. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing there does really help us out a whole lot. And if there's an episode that really stood out to you, go ahead and share it with a friend. You have no idea how much that helps us. And one of the things that I've really appreciated, especially over the last couple of weeks, Brian and I have had an opportunity to kind of just step back a little bit and do a whole lot more listening than maybe we typically would. We want to listen and learn, and we are absolutely thrilled to have on the line right now, Brother Joe Wright. Welcome to the show, sir. Oh, thank you. Would you just take take a minute or two before we get rolling here and just introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Sure, no problem. Um, uh, I am a Chicagoan, but I don't live in Chicago anymore. Uh, My wife... Rhonda and I, we became uh, missionaries with Artists and Christian Testimony, mm-hmm. uh, a missionary organization in uh, Nashville. And it gave us a way to have a covering to uh, do the kind of things we like doing, which is street evangelism, mm-hmm. which is uh, working with uh, Marion Alvarado with the homeless. That's right. And uh, uh dealing with families, marriage, uh, relationships, and things of that nature. So uh, I didn't start out that way. I started out just kind of being uh, a kid growing up in the projects, uh, being influenced by music. Uh, a lot of the doo-wop groups hmm. be singing out in front of the building, and that's kind of how I got really impressed to hmm. get into this music thing deep, deeper, except my grandmother started me in music as a five, six-year-old. So it was just a way to kind of uh, keep me going in the music thing. And then moving forward, uh, we moved out of the city uh, into a suburb. And then that's when I would see the green grass houses <laughs> and uh, kids with the nice bikes uh, behind gated fences where they had their swimming pool. Right. <laughs> but we didn't have one. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and uh, as time goes on, 
Uh, I left that scene, went off to college after touring out of high school with a Christian rock band, which I didn't know was a rock Christian rock band. Hmm. Uh, the guitar player was my roommate. He had came from uh, uh, being a musician in Las Vegas uh, with, uh, you know, one of those big acts out there. And he was telling me about being born again. And hmm. I had went to church. But I didn't know about being born again. So uh, from there, after leaving the group, I uh, instead of uh, now you guys are going to kick me for this. I had a chance <laughs> to continue the tour and the tour was going to be out of Detroit with Lionel Harris and Sandy Patty. No, no kidding. <laughs> oh, you guys remember those names. Yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> But I said, no, I, I want to go to college and mm. came back and went to junior college. And that's where I met Rhonda. And we broke up because she went off to fly, uh, become a stewardess. And I went off to finish school down in uh, Decatur at Milliken. Mm. And while at Milliken, I was in the number, the top jazz, traveling jazz band. And I toured America, Europe, all over the place. And we wow. made albums when we got back. And therefore... There, how, that's how I got the bug, the recording bug. Mm. And so uh, now as we speak, I'm in my studio <laughs> talking mm. to you guys <laughs> as, a, awesome. as an engineer and producer. So Wow. wow. Uh, Joe, I'd love to go back to kind of the early stages of your life. Could you tell us what it was like as a kid growing up uh, in the uh, inner city of Chicago? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was all good. You know, everything was family. Everything was cool, you know. Uh where it got dicey was when uh, things would happen with people. Uh, we we find out that somebody wasn't around. We say, hey, where's Junebug? Oh, man, Junebug got killed. Mm. What? Wow. Oh, no. You know, so things like that started happening. And uh, next thing I know, my parents packed us up and got out of out of the projects. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it, it was just, it, it, you know, you, you don't know your environment is, is that uh, dangerous. It's just, it's just your neighborhood is where you live. Right. Right. But when people started getting killed, it was kind of like, okay, oops, uh, we need to switch environments or something. Right. <laughs> Now, you, you also spent some time at Cambrini Green, right? I remember when I first came out here for school, that was one of the first, like, sleep-out protests I did was sleeping wow. outside of Cabrini, actually, having just moved here from Detroit, not knowing all that much, but I had some friends who were more kind of activist-minded and was and was just really inspired, really really convicted by that. What what was it like living in that area, going to school in that area? It looks like you, you lived with your grandma for a while. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, because that's where the, the doo-wop artists, the big, the big name guys, mm. some of them lived in the projects and they would always be out practicing doo-wop with their groups. And, uh, the, the other thing about that is, uh, that's where I got my first paper route, uh, which you had to collect the money from the people <laughs> that you deliver papers to and, mm -hmm. I would get robbed. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> and um, uh, it's just where um, 
we 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 thought it was family, but uh, be, as as time went on, our freedoms and things of that nature became less and less because of the gang activity. Mm. Wow. Mm. Yeah. What was so it like? You, it looks like you made it through your sleep out. So <laughs> yeah, I did. I did survive. That's true. <laughs> Joe, what was it like then to move out to the suburbs? That must have been just Woo! just a crazy, uh, crazy time for you. <laughs> you know what it's like? Uh, you know, man, it's like, wait a minute. Does this really, this place really exist on earth? <laughs> grass, uh, you know, Bikes, uh, you know, not having to worry about uh, things uh, too much. Uh, but uh, Dr. King got assassinated, and that's when <laughs> that's when things uh, really went south mm-hmm. in terms of relationships mm. with Caucasian uh, neighbors and friends. Mm. All right, so that's a perfect segue. Coming up next, I'm going to ask you about that. What was it like living during that time and realizing that some of these tensions were beginning to rise and that some of the heat was kind of starting to turn up a little bit and some of the choices that I know you made in the weeks and months and years that followed? That's coming up next here with Brother Joe Wright on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Good to have you back, by the way, Brian. You can find us a a bunch of places. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. I highly recommend you peruse that page. You can also review that page. That helps us out. 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is you get your podcast, if you're the podcasting type, sharing it helps, subscribing to it helps, rating and reviewing it really helps. And if, uh, if you wouldn't mind... That helps us out a ton. If you already have, thank you so much for doing that. We are so thrilled to joined another segment, Brother Joe Wright. He's been telling us a bit of his story, which is remarkable, by the way. And one of the things you were just sharing was that after moving out of the projects into the suburbs and then living in the suburbs at the time that Dr. King was assassinated, sort of opened your eyes in some ways to some of the tensions that you were experiencing. I'm wondering... Could you talk to us a little bit more about what that season of life was like for you? Absolutely. Um, we uh, had planned to walk out of school and protest. And, and that was the first time I was involved with something like that. Hmm. Uh, although one of the things that I did, uh, this was the west side of town, but on the south side of town, there was a uh, coffee house called the Black Bottom. Mm. And that's where the poets and spoken word people would be, Mm. you know, spitting on the mic about life and about the man and blah, blah, blah. Right. 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 I was a percussionist. And so I would go to just play, you know, percussion behind them and, but I really wasn't into the whole philosophy of where they were coming from. I was just a musician, so I just wanted hmm. to play. <laughs> hmm. So then, then when the protesting and marching out of school happened, that was totally unorganized. Hmm. Uh, we all planned, okay, we were at lunch. Okay, this is what we're going to do. Boom, 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 right? So we show up at the front door, uh, I should have looked behind me before I walked out uh, because all of the thousands of people that were going to do it 
weren't behind me. <laughs> uh, we step out, maybe about six, seven, eight of us, and the principal steps out and say, you all, <laughs> you all suspended. Wow. <laughs> and guess what? That was the end of my days for protesting mm. and uh, being black power marches and things of that nature mm. uh, in an un- or- unorganized fashion. Yeah. After mm. that, you know, I, that helped me to understand if I was going to be involved in any of kind of, uh, you know, thing where I wanted to uh, support uh, the protests or, you know, I said, well, I need to be in something more organized uh, mm. so I don't get kicked out of school. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. No kidding. And that opened my eyes to two things. One, uh, why, why was King assassinated? Certainly didn't understand that. And then two, uh, why would uh, our white principal put, you know, suspend seven, eight black kids that's just trying to uh, be proactive mm. to, to do something or say something and uh, about what happened to King. And so therefore, it, it, in my mind, it was like, okay, this is a power move. Mm. Uh, there's a color thing happening here. You know what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it to me, it would have been better if he had said, look, everybody come to my office. It was only seven or eight of us. Everybody come to my office or to the gym or, you know, wherever. Yeah. And, and let's talk about this. Let's have a discussion. Rather than you all suspended. Boom. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I said, no, okay, I'm not going to be involved in this kind of stuff. Because that's what happens. It, it turns against you. When people say they with you, they ain't with you. And then you're looking at the principal who's white and it's kind of like, uh, okay. Mm. So th- that, that's how I, I begin to understand how to uh, not do something out of uh, emotion. Mm. Yeah. As you've watched these last couple of weeks of with the protests and everything going on, has it been similar? Have you seen that kind of it's been kind of the same or how has it been different for you? It's it's the same, but it's more extreme. Hmm. See, it's it's not about being peaceful and having your voice heard with a, a group of people that are in, on one accord. It it it, it uh, troubles me, and that's why I uh, released the video where the fathers, because what I saw was people that did not have any what we call homegrown uh, teaching and uh, uh, respect mm. for other people's property. I was taught that. See, so I don't come out here to protest and then tear stuff up. Mm-hmm. So th- that's, you know, there's a, uh, you know, well, you know, some people may say, well, we need to, 
you know, so people can understand how mad and, and dis- disenfranchised we are. Hmm. Yeah. But, you know, we weren't taught that that's how you have a voice. You know, hmm. you do okay. it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm wondering what what now that you've lived some life since since those days that you first experienced protests and marches, if you could hop in a time machine and talk to yourself when you were, I don't know, 18, 20, what, what would you say to that version of yourself? Oh, I would say, uh, wow. I'm glad I went on that tour hmm. with the rock band in California because it opened my eyes to uh, knowing, wanting to know more about God and about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that for me was the game changer mm. in the whole process of life period. Right, right. So when I, when I made that transition to allow Christ to become the Lord of my life mm. and I began reading his word, now I have a, a I feel I have a perspective that has nothing to do with what people are doing outside of my head. Mm-hmm. I have a perspective that's going to help me to survive and strive. Mm. That's so good. You're listening to Brother Joe Wright, and we're going to join him. Uh, he's going to join us, rather, for the next segment. We're going to ask him a little bit more about his faith journey and what that's been like particularly in light of having been a Chicagoan for as long as he has, but also how it pertains to race conversations, what that means for the church, what that means for followers of Jesus. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. There are a bunch of places you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We would love for you to weigh in on the articles that we're posting there. You can send us messages if you have ideas or suggestions shows you can also find the podcast wherever it is you find podcasts subscribing rating reviewing all that stuff does really help us out a whole lot and we're joined one more segment by brother joe wright who's got a fascinating story really unique perspective not only with regards to race in america but here in chicagoland and last segment joe you were just kind of beginning to talk about talk about the faith aspect of your journey and i'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit more about what that was like for you Absolutely. Um, you know, when, when you're an artist and you're around other artists, uh, that's, that's community. And uh, when they're Christian artists, that helps because then it's not about trying to be famous or trying to uh, everybody know my name kind of thing. It's more like, hey, let's Let's do this for Jesus. And so we started a, uh, a group that <clears throat> we just, wherever we could go to sing and play, that's what we did. Hmm. Uh, and, and therefore, we began to see uh, other people, other nationalities, other uh, uh, environments to become more uh, well-rounded at at least at that time in our lives to become more well-rounded in terms of who God is and how he, how he plays a role in our life. 
and so uh, ministry, which I guess that's what it was called, you know, uh, is what where we just came from. You know, we just want to uh, be about letting people know that they can still be who they are, except God can help them become better. Mm. God can, can can help them grow, can help them, their perspective, their insight, uh, their, their thinking. Uh, when it's biblical, it's, uh, it, it has a balance. It's not just what you hear on the news, see on the TV, read in the papers. It's his word that's true from then till now. Mm. And ans- all the answers are there. Uh, but it's just we can't bring it to the people today as like a religious Jesus thing. You know, uh, they ain't going to hear it. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about so, uh, Yeah. To, I'm sorry. No, I was just wondering about your music career. How has that kind of helped you understand more about Jesus? And what have you seen God do in and through your, your music career? Oh, absolutely. Um, again, you know, going back to Milliken, that's where I was exposed to recording the recording studio. And uh, coming back to, to Chicago, we, we joined a church uh, and the, the, the secretary of the church's husband was managing a, a studio. And I would tell him, hey, I'm interested in coming to the studio. I said, come on. And um, having opportunities like that uh, to get my group in, to make demos and things of that nature, write songs. Um, you know, of course, uh, not realizing that one day myself, not my group, not anybody else, that it would turn into more of me beginning to understand how to communicate Hmm. because I don't, I'm not a preacher. So my songs is actually how Hmm. I can speak and, uh, let people know about uh, Jesus. Hmm. And so um, went to Nashville, went to a lot of writing workshops, uh, did a lot of things to kind of hone craft, my craft to learn. I was involved with doing a lot of jingles in town. Hmm. So I was in, always in the studio, always working, always doing stuff that kind of made me want to know more about how to turn this into uh, glorifying God, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because what made me upset was how the secular artists were giving God, you know, after singing uh, half naked on a video mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. bees and holes on a record, uh, would give God glory at a Grammy award show. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just got fed up and I said, Oh no, God, <laughs> what is this? You know, and you know what God said to me? He said, well, you do something about it. Hmm. I said, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. And that's how uh, Block Records was born. Hmm. Wow. Uh, It didn't happen overnight. Uh, And as of today, uh, thank God we uh, have our first uh, Black uh, Block Records. Records means Black, Latin, Asian pop music ministry. Mm. And uh, we have our first Latin artist release, 
as we speak. Her CDs are in my garage. Oh, wow. <laughs> is, there, is, there a, is there a website people can go to to learn more about that? Uh, yeah, well, we have a YouTube. We have a YouTube site, you know. Right on. Uh, uh, Blop Records, B-L-A-P-O-P-R-E-C-O-R-D-S-U-S-A. Uh, and then my artist's website is um, uh, airplaydirect.com, A-I-R-P-L-A-Y, direct.com, forward slash, block, B-L-A-P-O-P, records. Love it. You mentioned at the very beginning of this interview, actually, the reason that you and I even know each other is because you're a part of a ministry that my mother-in-law started called Timothy's Ministry. We've had her on the show, by the way. You can learn more at timothysministry.org. That's timothysministry.org, a wonderful ministry. She's uh, she's an, just an incredible woman and leader, and you're a part of this with her. Can you talk just for the last couple of minutes or so, what has that been like for you to partner with Timothy's Ministry in the city these last, I don't know, two or three months or so? Man, it has been a fantastic journey. Hmm. Um, one, one day in the winter, February, uh, I, I, I work from home and Rhonda tells me that my wife tells me, "Hun, make sure everything's straightened up before people come over, you know? Hmm. So I'm doing the dishes. I have Moody radio. I'm sorry. My bad. <laughs> We're, they're friends. <laughs> yeah. We'll allow it. And, <laughs> and Dr. Lutzer is on, right? And I'm washing the dishes. And then, uh, and, and, and what he was talking about was how Paul was su- supported by a rich guy in Corinth. And, hmm. and I thought what? he was. I thought he was a tent maker. Mm. Uh, mm. And right after that came a segment where Marion, your mother-in-law, came mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. to talk about Timothy's ministry. And and I listened to it and I said, wait a minute. <laughs> I said, I want to go out there and help. Mm. So I emailed her, found the email, I emailed her, and uh, they said, come on. And that was back in 2006. And uh, been been going there ever since. Uh, love it. It's just ministry, you know. Uh, I, I always felt like if if God wanted me to do anything, He wanted me to just be about helping people. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad they helped people. That's how we grew. What's we saw? We grew right. up seeing them help people. Uh, they weren't just family. Right. They would help people. Right. Uh, we had my we had foster children in our home. We had veterans in our home. We had, um, I mean, when we did get a house, um, we were all we were, we had a thrift store. We had mm. <laughs> a, wow. a, a place where the youth could come to, to play music and games. Mm. And so I didn't know that that was all going to be a part of how I saw uh, ministry, and by going to Timothy's ministry every two weeks, we go out to Arlington Heights. Mm. Uh, now it's in um, the city just on the other side. Of it, you know, uh, It's fantastic. That's so, great. Yeah. Well, Brother Joe, literally everyone who meets you talks highly of you. Marion loves you. My wife, Katie, loves you. So grateful for you and your heart and your ministry. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. My pleasure, Thanks. gentlemen. Thank <laughs> God for you. 
And I, I appreciate it because hopefully this may help someone uh, just even in, if they have a question, if they have a thought, if they have a, a hindrance, if they're, they're, they're held up mm. with moving forward and giving their life mm. to Christ. Yes, sir. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's mm. worth it. Amen. That's right. Thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Aunt Jemima, and then a little bit later, what does Trinity have to do with racism? That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. If you're brand new to the show, let me tell you some stuff about the show. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can leave comments. You can rate and subscribe to that page. Share it with a friend. Send us a message. Do whatever you want. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Plus, you guessed it. We are also podcasted. If uh, you're not familiar yet, by the way, go back and listen to the interview we just had with Brother Joe Wright. Really, really great stuff. And the podcast is the way that we know a lot of you consume the show. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that stuff, it's really, really helpful, more helpful than I can express. And we're so grateful for those of you who already have. Brian, um, I don't know if you, how much time are you spending just like scrolling Facebook and Twitter for news stories right now? Uh, probably too much. Like I like scrolling for the show, but sometimes I, I get sucked in. I've, I actually just yesterday was thinking to myself, I'd probably like to spend a little less time on social media in the yeah. coming days, but because uh, it does have an adverse effect over time. But yeah, been been there's a lot of news to keep up with. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no. When we had Casey Tiger on the show yesterday, in between segments, he said, "Hey, the McGriddle is trending right now," and I'm not sure I even want to know why. <laughs> I saw something today is like. Taco Bell is canceled. So I don't yes. it's, it's really it. You're right. It's a lot to take in. It's like drinking from a fire hose. One, though, that maybe on the surface doesn't seem like a like a robust story. But when you dig into it a little bit, I think that it actually is. The headline from Vice says more brands are suddenly realizing their packaging is really racist. Probably the most notably, at least uh, recently, has been Aunt Jemima. And I don't, have you been following that news specifically with uh, the Aunt Jemima? A little bit. Yeah. You know, it says the companies behind cream of wheat, hot cereal and Mrs. Butterworth syrup said they'd review their branding following the news earlier in the day that Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's product lines would go through similar reviews. Mm-hmm. You know, I think things that that have been around for a long time that people didn't even really probably know uh, where they came out of. Now people are revisiting and going, where? wait, what does that symbolize? And And it's probably a healthy thing going on right now. I'm seeing bands do it a lot, too. I just saw an article yesterday, I think, where some band's frontman was, like, making fun of another band for scrutinizing or at least reconsidering their name until he realized that their band's name was actually pretty awful. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> I, it's I don't I don't know if it's like awakening feels like too strong a word, but I do I do think it's worth talking about. I imagine some people are listening, thinking they're just brand names. What's the big deal? Right. Yeah. Um, so what would you let's start there. What would you say maybe is the big deal to someone, some hypothetical person that's saying, really, syrup, does that matter? Where where does Brian Fromm land on that? How would you respond to someone who kind of feels that way? Oh, I would probably respond to them. Well, if it's not a big deal for you, then you shouldn't care. Like you shouldn't care that they're changing it. And mm. 
uh, that just because it's not a big deal to you doesn't mean it's not hurtful to somebody else. I think that's what's kind of coming out. That's kind of the theme of a lot of these because, you know, did I ever think anything about Aunt Jemima Bottle or Mrs. Butterworth or any of these? No, I've never thought I've never looked at them and been like, wow, that's a racist thing or that's uh, insensitive. But it doesn't mean that that's true for everybody. And so if if there are other people who feel that way, uh, I would rather trend towards uh, them not feeling that what not having to feel that way rather than. Again, it doesn't change anything for me. So so let's uh, let's do the compassionate thing for other people. Uh, I know there's probably people out there going, well, where does it all end? And that's a worthwhile conversation to have. But if you're a company uh, on the one side, you just don't want to be labeled as racist. So if, if there's anything that's bad for business, but you hope it goes deeper than that. And they're trying to be part of the solution and going, you know what, if 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 what we've been doing all these years is causing people hurt then it's not worth it. And let's make that change and own up to it and going forward, have a different image. I don't see anything wrong with that. And if you're one of those people who goes, Oh, quit being so sensitive, then it probably isn't, you don't even need to worry about it. It's going to be the same syrup. Uh, and you can, uh, and you could just go on with your day. And so I, I would say just because it doesn't bother you, does it, that's not the end all. Right. Uh, right. And uh, so I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. And it is interesting uh, we could talk about this going forward, like all the statues coming down and people wanting names changed at colleges or whatever else. It is an interesting conversation as to like where all this ends. Uh, but, you know, in terms of marketing, these seem like pretty low hanging fruit to me. Yeah. And I wonder why you said that a couple of times. Where does it all end? Why do you think that's such a heavy consideration? Because part of what I find interesting is how embedded so many things like this are in our culture. So someone's like, well, I never saw Aunt Jemima through that lens. Like, yeah, because it's, it's been there for a long time. Like, you could apply the same logic to the statue. Like, well, don't take the statue. It's been there for a long time. Looks nice in the park. What's, what's the big deal? Which, to your point, is like, well, if it's, not, if it's not a big deal to you, then don't sweat it. But if it actually is harmful or is perpetuating unhelpful stereotypes like i'm wondering you know you're like you're a sports guy where do you land on the like on the redskins debate I'm, we've been talking about that for years and there doesn't seem to be any any traction there yeah i i think it's terrible that they're called the redskins but really uh yeah you know again yeah but but then what do you do with the chicago blackhawks and what do you do with you know you just keep going and this is what i mean exactly right i, I think it's worth having the conversation so i'm not one of these people who goes well if you change one, then you're going to try want to, people are going to want to change them all. And it's not, you know, whatever. I think you can have these conversations on a case by case, more nuanced basis. Um, yeah. You know, because you start getting into questions with the less obvious ones, who gets to decide what and when. And, and so I don't know the right answer to it, but yeah, Washington Redskins, uh, when basically every native American group says that that's really hurtful, that they have that right. name. Right. That feels like uh, that feels like an easy one, you know. Something like uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, where there seems to be mixed as opposed, you know, is this honoring? Is this not? I don't know who gets to make that call, and so that's where it gets a little gray. Yeah. Um, but again, some of these seem really obvious. And um, well, what do you, you know, think like is we- the reason that the obvious ones don't see any movement? Then, if you know, and I I tend to agree with you, but. The Redskins one seems like, well, like a no duh. Is it, does it really come down to money? Is that in your mind? Like, well, yeah, but to change all that branding, that's, that would just take too much. Like what in your mind, 
Like, why are we seeing this rapid action from a syrup company, but such slow action from an NFL team? Hmm, that's good. I would guess something like the Redskins or other things or statues. Uh, it starts to come down to the longer something's been in place, the harder it is to change. I think it's different with branding. Um, but, you know, it's kind of embedded into, uh, you know, I doubt there's a lot of Washington Redskins fans going, I love this team because it demeans Native Americans, but they would right, be sad right. to lose the name Redskins, right? Um, right? And, you know, people start going, well, you know, just that's not what we mean by it. Or, you know, it's when, when the same conversation we had last week about uh, the Confederate flag at NASCAR events. Mm-hmm. And people go, well, that's just part of our Southern heritage and you can't tear all that away and, and – um, you know, I think that once you start pulling at what is some people for some people, just longstanding heritage, uh, there's it, they just hold on to it a lot tighter. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the Redskins one though, it seemed really obvious for years. And that's one, that one surprised me that their owner, Daniel Snyder seems really dug in. He must have his reasons. They must be, they must've run the financial analysis is my guess because, uh, they, they've really dug in pretty deeply on that one. Well, and it, and we've said it a couple of different ways too, but it's, I'll say it again. It's not enough to just not be a racist. It, mm-hmm. I think especially the call for the Christ followers to be anti-racism, right? I think mm-hmm. we fall into this myth of like, well, I'm not a clan member. So I guess I'm in the clear, like, no, 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 there's, there's systems and structures. And it's not just enough to be like, well, I'm not a racist, a Christ follower, an image, but someone who understands the gospel needs to be proactively speaking right. to these things. So maybe on the surface, you're listening to thinking it's just syrup. What's the big deal? But I think Christ followers, like you were saying so well, if this, if this is harming an image bearer, then we need to at the very least give attention to that. And I think that's, I think that's really important. We're well, coming up and next. I think, oh, yeah, go, go, ahead. Nope, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think for the people who are like, oh, they're just being PC and just going along with, with what's going on right now. I would say that's a good thing. <laughs> that's okay. And, uh, and, and this change is helpful, even if it's just a brand and it doesn't seem like that big a deal. I think it's a change in the right direction. Yeah, coming up next, uh, why good guys are the real bad guys. We're going to talk about that article coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Howdy ho, neighbor. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. Brian and I are both pastors. Brian, what's the name of your church again? It's been so long since I've asked you. That is true. I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, just south of Downers Grove. You can find us at FCCC.Church. And uh, yeah. So how about you? What is that name of your church? It's a color. It's a shape. I don't remember. It's both a color and a shape. It's called the Yellow Box, <laughs> officially and unofficially one of 11 locations of Community Christian Church throughout Chicagoland, out here in the burbs, down in the city. But we're all digital right now anyway. So what does that matter? Anyway, uh, you can find us a couple of places if you want. The Common Good Radio Show is what you type into your browser in Facebook to find us. You can see our uh, illustrated faces wearing masks. You can also see all the articles we post. You can weigh in there or send us a message. Plus, we're podcasted. And if you wouldn't mind, I don't know if anyone's actually done this. It's so simple to do. You just open the podcast, scroll all the way to the bottom, leave a little rating, leave a little five-star, hit that subscribe button, share it with a friend. It does help us out a whole ton, and uh, we're super grateful for those of you who have done that. This headline is super intriguing to me. It's from Joel Delaney. And he says, why good guys are the real bad guys, sustaining systemic racism. What's going on here? 
It's a fascinating article about something called the Stanford Prison Experiments. Let me read some of this to you. Uh, Professor Zimbardo, the lead behind the now infamous Stanford Prison Experiment, stated in a speech to Congress on his findings that, for me, he said, a prison is any situation in which one person's freedom and liberty are denied by virtue of the arbitrary power exercised by another person or group. Thus, our prisons of concrete and steel are really only metaphors for the real prisons we create and maintain through enforced poverty, racism, sexism, and other forms of social injustice. Uh, The author goes on to say, I've personally found it difficult to reconcile within myself the reality of what international protests and a greater number of voices crying out passionately for justice and racial equality means for me. He says, I've been wrestling with many of the same questions as we all have. The Mm. word systemic prefixing racism alerts us to the severity of the issue, but also arises a feeling of helplessness. The sheer scale of protests and the deep global undercurrents of pain and polarization makes it hard to know where to start processing issues that have come to the fore of our collective consciousness. To bring the experience down to the individual level in pursuit of potential actions and lessons for me, I've sought a couple different narratives in this post. He writes, I'm going to draw on the lessons from the Stanford prison experiment. So that's how he sets it up. He's trying to understand this whole concept of systemic. Uh, which has been something that you and I have really wrestled with, right? Like this isn't yep. even about individuals. This is about systems. Um, and, and then he's going to use the Stanford prison experiment. I'd ask you, do you feel like people are getting this conversation in about systems and systemic? And then have you ever heard of the Stanford prison experiment here? I have heard of the experiment. Yeah. I don't think necessarily everyone would agree that it's a matter of getting or not getting. Well, there's probably plenty of people listening that are, passionately opposed to the idea that there's any systemic or structural racism, which, by the way, is not really a right or left thing. We read an article a couple of weeks ago from Pastor John Piper, who was quite decidedly on the conservative side of things. And yep. he wrote a a really well-written blog about systemic and structural racism. So I don't I don't think that I buy this whole like, ah, oh, it's the right and left. Which yeah, is an, it's kind of an easy trope, I think, because it, like it is it does happen to be right and left in a lot of things right now. Um, but I, I really think it's more nuanced than that. And that's why I think this experiment is really helpful. So let me read a little bit about the experiment. Yeah, it's a whole long article. We won't have time to get into all of it, but it, this is kind of a helpful framing. I think since the experiment was conducted by Professor Zimbardo and his team from the 14th of August to the 20th of August in 1971. The volunteers had signed up to be in a study looking at the effects of prison on guards and prisoners. There were 24 students selected after 70 had applied who were all tested to establish whether they had any psychological problems, medical issues, or were criminals or drug users. All students selected were deemed normal and safe to be involved in the experiment. The subjects were a group of students, healthy, intelligent, middle-class men. They were placed at a flip of a coin as prisoners or guards. At the beginning of the experiment, there were nine boys placed as prisoners and nine guards. The experiment was scheduled to last two weeks. Full details of the experiment can be found here. He links to it. Suffice it to say, the brutality and horror of what began to happen in the guard's conduct, as well as the severe effects it had rapidly on the prisoners, can be well intuited by their decision to stop the experiment after just six days, less than half of the intended Mm. time frame. The point I want to note from the experiment that has stuck out to me so significantly since reading is taken from Professor Zimbabwe's speaking on prison reform in October 1971. The proximity of the speech to the experiment showing his immediate interpretation of events, speaking of the guards, he described three groups, with the third being my main focus. So 
I don't, again, you sort of asked me, that was rude of me. I didn't ask you, have you heard of this experiment before? I had never have. The first time I read it was reading this. So there it's, you get the gist of it though. I do. Uh, at random, they were placed either as a prisoner or a guard mm-hmm. and apparently establishing those hierarchies uh, warranted such awful results that they ended up having to like shut the experiment down, which is part of what I think he's getting at. There's like underlying patterns of behavior that I think are really, really tough for us to come to terms with. Yeah. He goes on to say one third of the guards were quote tyrannical uh, in their arbitrary use of power. They enjoyed the simple act of controlling another person. Mm. They were corrupted by power of their roles and became quite inventive in the techniques of breaking the spirit of the prisoners and making them feel worthless. Mm. Uh, He goes, while this is disgusting and evidently wrong, I was personally more horrified to read Zimbardo's words concerning the quote, good guards. May they shake you as they shook me. He says, good guards did small favors. They were friendly. They told the prisoners their names, but the really important message and a subtle one is that no good guard ever interfered. Mm. Uh, He went on to drive this point home by saying the bad guards, the mean ones, the brutal ones created a sense of terror, but it was the really good guards who perpetrated, uh, who uh, perpetuated, I'm sorry, the prison because they needed the bad guys in order to make themselves be the good guys. He says, Mm. pause for a moment. Uh, That, that, that's really struck me when I read this for the first time. Again, I had never heard of this. So reading it for the first time today, because you always think about the bad, the bad, the bad. But he said what really kind of shook this experiment up were the good guards who didn't do anything to ever stop the bad ones. And that just kind of allowed the bad ones to just keep doing what they were doing. Yeah, he goes on to say, this is again from uh, Dr. Zimbardo in 1971. They used the brutality of the bad guys to establish themselves as good. They needed to be liked so much that they never objected to the bad guys. They needed the prisoners to like them, so they befriended them. They created a social reality which made rebellious prisoners be good prisoners to go along with the system, not to make trouble, which you can imagine some of those implications, right? I know we only have like a minute or so left. What... What do you do with that? Well, he he did. He uses this phrase. This is the one that struck me the first time I read it. He says, Zimbardo is showing. He said, remove the, the label of guard or prisoner. He said, Zimbardo is showing. And here's the phrase that the weak good make way for the evil. Wow. You're like, Oh, man, that's a deep one, because a lot of us have felt that. Like, I'm just going to sit these things out, whether it be right. what we're currently talking about or you can insert other things into it. Right. This idea is something I'm going to really wrestle with. This idea of the weak good making way for evil, I think, is a powerful thing to kind of chew on. Yeah, and I'll just read one more excerpt before we wrap up. He said, what this experiment shows is what none of us want to see ourselves. It harshly illustrates that, quote, individual behavior is largely under the control of social forces and environment, environmental contingencies rather than some vague notion of personal traits, character, willpower, or other empirically invalidated constructs. I totally agree. This is one that I think I'm going to wrestle with for a long, long time. I would encourage you. I know that that's just sort of a quick flyover, but go to our Facebook page, read the whole thing. It's really, really good, but also incredibly convicting. Coming up next, Out of Miss You Alliance, a uh, website that we've referenced a good number of times these last couple of months, tackles the question why Christians seem to be incapable of racial healing. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hey, everyone. Missed you. So glad that you're still here. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And uh, I'm going to let Brian give you some of the particulars about social media and whatnot. 
Yeah, you can find us on Facebook at the Common yeah, Good Radio All the time. We're just there all the time. The Common Good Radio Show. There you can find uh, articles that we've discussed. Even we put up stuff there often that we don't even discuss on the show. And it's fun to watch people uh, just comment back and forth, hopefully build a little bit of community, uh, even in the midst of debate. So you can do that at the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook. You can also find all that same stuff on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, you go to 1160hope.com and our podcast. Get our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, that does help us. I almost forgot the website there. I know I heard you laughing. I was like, wait, uh, 1160hope.com. I got it. <laughs> I didn't know if it was like a, an intentional dramatic pause. We've all it been was there. Not- you say the same thing over and over again, and you just forget how to say it. And I completely understand. Oh, man. I did also want to mention Thrivent. So a couple of things. Thrivent.com is a good starting place. Wonderful company. Fortune 500, non-for-profit, been around for a century or so. I'm a Thrivent member. Unashamedly, I love what they do. Also, Thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to check out if you're looking for a career change. Plus, man, they have been on fire lately with webinars they're offering, and they're all totally for free, by the way. We're sharing them like crazy on our Facebook page. We did one yesterday with Matthew Paul Turner, who is an incredible uh, book writer, children's book writer, and he's going to do a couple more of those coming up. But there's workshops for kids and homeschooling and how to lead through crisis and how to run a business and how to lead well and serve well. Just incredible stuff. So that's another reason to stay current on our Facebook page because the stuff that Thriving is doing is remarkable, and we are super, super grateful for them doing that. Uh, this story out of Miss You Alliance. So Sean Palmer, do you know who Sean Palmer is? I do not. Uh, really, really gifted writer, thinker, preacher. This is actually a, a few years old now, but the headline kind of caught my attention is why Christians are incapable of racial healing. Why don't you get us into this a little bit, and then we'll uh, we'll dig in. Yeah, he uh, he begins by saying uh, a question that he received from a friend and partner in podcasting. He's the friend asked him, do they know that you could talk about other things? And it says it stung me. I'd mentioned to John that I was heading for another speaking trip where I'd be talking about racial justice and reconciliation. For most of my ministry, I tried to avoid speaking publicly about race because I feared what John had sensed that once I started, I'd be locked in pigeonholed. And as soon as John said it, my heart sank. I wish I didn't have to. And then he goes on to talk about the things that he wished he didn't need to talk about. Uh, and he, he goes to this underneath, um, underneath the title of the unspeakable error. He says too often, the refrain from white Christians regarding racism and bigotry is that it doesn't exist. If racism does exist, it either exists somewhere else no one I know is a racist right. or it would go away if black and brown people just quit talking about it. Mm-hmm. My brothers and sisters have become so racially discombobulated that an Italian friend recently commented to me that he was, quote, as dark skinned as any black person. Wow. Such is the level of our racial incoherence that some have descended into pure lunacy. He says it's hard to look straight faced into the shooting of an unarmed, unarmed black man. Uh, the public rise of the alt right in the recent, you says a couple years ago, events in right. Charlottesville. He said it rude, I believe, is that our white Christian sisters and brothers naming racism is something like Beetlejuice. If they say it three times out loud, it'll appear and demand to be dealt with. Mm. Sorrowfully, the failure to name racism doesn't keep us from dealing with bigotry. It actually gives bigotry a stronger hold on us. Mm. So, again, uh, powerfully written. I wonder, Ian, if, if you still feel like this holds now 
Uh, there's been a little bit of a shift, obviously, right, in the last month or so. Right. Uh, but is this does this still hold? Does this still hold well for you right now? I I think it I think it does probably in a much different way. As I mentioned, this will be almost three years old, uh, and we were definitely dealing with stuff then too. Part of what I keep seeing from my brothers and sisters of color online are comments like, um, "We're so glad you're here, white people." But this has been a work that we've been doing for a while. It feels like for a lot of white leaders in particular sort of like, holy cow, did you guys know this is a problem? And <laughs> my black and brown friends are like, e- yeah, we knew. Like, we're fully aware. So I think it can kind of continue to be a little polarizing because you and I have talked about it on the show a lot the last month, which I'm yep. sure some people want to champion. Other people are saying, oh, here they go again. So it does feel like in some ways maybe the divide is getting stronger or wider or deeper where I do see a whole lot more people taking a posture of learner and listener and they're reading and watching stuff that maybe they otherwise haven't. But it does feel like those that kind of fit the narrative that he's painting here are like even more so digging in their heels like, oh, here we go again. You know what I mean? Like it feels like that while that number might not be getting bigger, it seems to be getting more resolute. And Mm -hmm. that to me is a a different kind of problem. Yeah. Let me ask you a question somebody asked me. Okay. Uh, cause I think you'll have a good answer for this. Um, somebody asked me, Hey, it feels like we've swung the pendulum too far in terms of like, now this is all we talk about. Like, what are we going to do? How long are we going to talk? It feels like just, uh, you know, this is all we hear about, not on our show necessarily, but just in general, yeah. um, that the pendulum swinging too far and what's the end result. How would you answer somebody like that? Cause I'm guessing you've heard stuff like that as well. I have. Yeah. One of the things, and I, I don't think I can take credit for this quote. I, I'm sure I've seen it somewhere else, but it was something like when you're acclimated to privilege, equality will feel like oppression. Mm. And and again, I guess, you know, if you don't buy the narrative at all that there is such a thing as white privilege, then maybe that quote is not meaningful at all. But I do, I do sense from some people like, Oh, this feels so I've even heard people use the word oppressive. Gosh, it's all that's in the news. It's all we're talking about. Um, I think part of what, for me is frustrating about that sentiment is that even that statement itself is sort of a position of privilege. Can't we stop? (laughs) Like that is a, that is a a position of privilege to be able to say, Oh, all right, I'm tired of this conversation. I'm going to put that on the shelf and come back to it later when I have more stamina or energy, because for a lot of people, this is their reality. They can't hang up their blackness and come back to it again when it's convenient for them. Like it's their lived reality. And so I, yeah, I, that is frustrating and disheartening sometimes. People are like, oh, okay, it's been a couple of weeks, though. Can we move on <laughs> to some other yeah. news? And you're like, oh, man. And that's, I think, is a real concern from my black and brown friends who are saying, yeah, um, this has a lot of attention right now, but this is a marathon, not a sprint. And they're saying, we did a segment on this a couple of weeks ago, like, please don't disengage. Like, please resist the urge of, like, Pulling back when like, oh, okay, well, I'm, a, I'm not as the adrenaline's not as high anymore. So I'm going to I'm going to bail right. on this conversation. I think, yeah, that long obedience in the same direction, man, that wow. that marathon metaphor, I think, is really important. So what I told this, Brad, I appreciate what you said there. What I told this person was uh, I would go find an African-American friend of yours in, in the church or in your neighborhood or whatever. And I would just say I would like literally and I don't know the answer. I would ask them the exact same question. Like, mm. has it gone too long? Isn't this enough already? What do you want to, you know, what's, what's the answer going forward? I just encourage that person. Like, 
like go find out if if uh, if your African American brother or sister in your life is feeling the same way. And I thought, you know, I I doubt they're going to give the same answer that you're feeling right now. Right, right. And so yeah, it's it it is uncomfortable though to keep thinking about it and talking about it. But I think that's part of the point, like that we finally got to a point where. Um, where people other than just the African-Americans in our life are having to carry the burden. I think that's okay. Yeah. the dis- And it should be this. Dis- I mean, I think it's a lot of what has led, unfortunately, like Giglio into this box of worms he's in now is like an, yeah. an, an attempt to make things a little less uncomfortable for a white oh, audience. Yeah. And I think that's part of what got him into that problem in the first place. And again, this article is really good. And I would, I would recommend you read the whole thing because he dives yeah. into scripture, but there's a paragraph here in the middle it's not even really how he ends it but he talks he says perhaps the reason we loathe and are slow to acknowledge and deal with this undeniable and central teaching of scripture speaking about race and reconciliation is because our nation was built and sustained by race-based slavery according to edward e baptist book the half has never been told slavery and making the american capitalism by 1850 enslaved africans are worth 1.3 billion dollars a full one-fifth of america's wealth Perhaps we cannot face racism because we cannot we cannot face the brutality which built our economy. And that's a little bit a little bit of what we're talking about when we talk about systemic or structural racism. Again, our time's up for this segment, but go read the full article because I just think I think it's remarkable. And coming mm-hmm. up next, this headline again started to stop me in my tracks. What does the Trinity have to do with racism? That's what's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. <laughs> Everyone, the sun is beginning to set on this show, but fret not. We're going to be back again tomorrow. The show is also podcasted if you just joined us. And uh, a couple of things quickly. If you want to check us out on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show is where to go. We post articles. We have conversations. There are digital hugs. It's delightful. You can send us messages if you have suggestions for future shows or guests or topics. We would love to hear from you there. You can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good or wherever it is you get your podcast. Now is the end of the show. It's the, perf- it's the perfect time to just hit pause or to scroll down. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review, and uh, that will make Brian smile so big. Yes, it will. A, a words of affirmation guy. You would make his whole year, which is um, that's not even that far from the truth, to be honest. But yeah, <laughs> I'm super grateful for those of you who have done that. And before we dive into this particular story. Brian, I'm wondering, how are you feeling just about the last, I don't know, three or four weeks? We've had a lot of intense news that we've been navigating. Neither of you, neither of you, neither of us are like journalists. So a lot of ways, the season has felt very strange to have a radio show. That's for sure. There's no doubt about that. And I have found myself, um, I think in the last three or four weeks, we've said the following phrase more than in like the rest of like our 16 months together, the I don't really feel uh, equipped to, to kind of talk about this right now, or I feel out over my skis on this one right. or, <laughs> I, right. and that, that goes with the territory, like, right. We're paid to talk, but there's been a lot of just what's going on in our culture in our churches, the articles we've read where I've gone, man, this is, this is hard to wrestle with. I don't really know. And so I think that's a good thing that that helps us grow. Yeah. And yeah. Ho- hopefully for the people listening, uh, rather than getting defensive, uh, they right. too have allowed it to just kind of stretch their minds. Cause there's been things we've talked about. I've been like, eh, do I agree with that? And other things I'm like, yes. Oh. Uh, but man, I've certainly felt like long winded way to answer your short question. I feel really, <laughs> I feel like the last three to four weeks has been really stretching for me. Yeah. Same. I, I totally agree. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be stretched and 
challenged and pushed back. And we, you know, hopefully we're doing a good job of not being totally defensive. And especially when we're confronted with stuff that uh, has to do with us. Uh, I found this article. I don't know if you're familiar with the Center for Pastor Theologians. Uh, They're remarkable. Their organization's remarkable. Their podcast is remarkable. Their resources are remarkable. This is a blog from Amy Peeler. And the headline reads, what does the Trinity have to do with racism? She says, everything. So she begins by saying, what does the Trinity have to do with racism? Everything. I do not mean that the Trinity is equal to anti-racism, that the current movement is the gospel in its entirety. No, our triune God is such that God responds to and equips us to respond to whatever the pressing issue of the day might be. The gospel encompasses all justice, all righteousness, all truth, and all beauty. But right now, that issue is racism, and our God has not left us orphaned. Each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, calls and equips us for such a time as this, in John 14, where Jesus teaches his disciples on his final night with them, offers us a powerful and practical instruction. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love in the Bible is not a mental ascent, not a feeling. It's an action. And no author portrays that with more consistency and clarity than John. Read his gospel and his letters. He talks about love constantly. It's true. So how do we show that we love Jesus? What are Jesus's commandments? Jesus is clear as day. Since I give you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. That's John 13, 34. Then in John 15, 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? By giving us life. Actually, the first use of the word commandment in John comes from the lips of Jesus in John 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Jesus says later in John twelve fifty that the uh, Father's command is eternal life. Jesus loved us by giving his life for us. Jesus loved us by defeating death. Jesus loved us by giving us eternal life. We can't love one another in this way. We can't give each other eternal life, obviously. The cognitive dissonance we experience with his words, that we should love one another as he loved us and our inability to do so, closes the door to any savior complex. If we think we can save others, if we try to love others in our own power, it will fail. It will be an expression of nothing other than pride. Any love we show has to be rooted in the love he showed us because he has given us eternal life. We can love others toward life. But what does that look like right now? So quite an introduction. Again, long article. We won't have time to get into it. But what would you guess she's going to say that that looks like right now? Hmm. I would guess that she's going to talk about as we love the way that Christ has loved us. Uh, as that is kind of the framework for all of this, then we are going to continually strive to put others above ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to humble ourselves, Philippians chapter two, we're going to humble ourselves uh, in the same manner uh, with the example of Jesus humbling himself to even death on a cross. And that uh, that basically the way we treat people of, of all races, of ethnicities, of uh, male, female, whatever else it might be, is going to be this uh, this lens of humility and this literally doing what Jesus did and in treating others as better than yourselves. And I think mm. I think that's where she's going to go with this and saying that if, as the Christ followers, uh, we could get there a little bit more, just a little bit more, it would make all the difference in the world culturally uh, in our society. Yeah, and again. This sort of is the name of the game today. Long article, don't have time to get into all of it. She gives a a particular charge to her congregation and those who recognize their own white privilege to to use and leverage for the marginalized. And she says, Jesus is asking us white people to give our lives for others. 
And for white people, that means using our privilege to speak and act. I got started on it this week by writing my city council to make police body cams mandatory because body cams are one surefire way to showcase the many great police and prosecute those uh, that are bad. We took our children to multiple peaceful protests. We educated ourselves and gave to ministries that work uh, with those hurt by racial violence. If you don't agree with these actions, that's fine. Please correct me if you know of a better way. I have so much to learn. I'm sure there are thousands of great ways to get involved, but we must do something. The world is watching and wondering if Christians have anything to say. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty a pretty pointed statement. I don't know. Have, have you experienced any of that in your own life? Like really people wondering what does the church, what what do Jesus people have to say about this? Oh, absolutely. And, um, and that's where, to go back to how we started this segment, talking about how this has just been a really stretching season, it's hard pastorally to sometimes know what to say. Like if, right. if you know, I think you and I have rightfully said, we want to listen, we want to learn, but then at the same time, people are looking to us to go, what's it, what are you going to say? Uh, has been something I think hard, at least for me to navigate. Uh, Cause I don't really like to talk when I'm, you know, when it's, when it doesn't feel like I'm the one who's got the most to say. And mm-hmm. so uh, that's made this season very difficult, but I think she makes a good point. I think uh, collectively, uh, the church has a real opportunity here where maybe the church has certainly dropped the ball in the past. And so uh, it is an interesting time here uh, for all churches to say, can we live out uh, kind of uh, the ethos, the, the love of Christ uh, to all people? And, and what would that say to the world around us? Well, and I do appreciate it too, because she, she goes on to mention, like, I don't say any of this to toot my own horn. To be honest, before any of this, I wasn't doing much of anything. Right. And I was inactive. I wasn't la- loving my neighbor as myself. Like, it's just wrought with a lot of vulnerability, a lot of kind of ownership. And then the end of it, and we don't have time to get into it, but she actually like lays out sort of a call and a charge as framed by the Trinity that I just think is like poetry. It's so good. So either way, I know that we mentioned this a lot, but this is one of those that would be worth sitting down. We're super grateful for Amy for writing it. Cause it's this kind of writing to me that is like, Oh, that'll preach like that. That's not, it's not intentionally trying to throw stones or be divisive. It's really humble, but it is also offering some suggestions for here's how we can actually live this out going forward, which I think is a question that Brian and I yeah. have hopefully been trying to wrestle through every day that we have this show. And uh, that's how we're going to wrap up today. It's been a wild ride. Again, a, a super, super, super big shout out to Brother Joe. Grateful for him and his leadership and ministry. And we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and this has been The Common Good on AM 1160.